0: Mark chapter 14 today, if you'll go ahead and join me in Mark chapter 14. We're coming to the final three chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Initially I did not intend to go all the way through Mark because I thought it would be... It would be long. I don't generally like to stay in a particular area for more than three or four months because it can become a little tiresome, but we've uh, stayed in Mark now for quite some time, and we're going to be finishing up the book in the next uh, six weeks here. Well, um, we'll have a two-week break so I'll be gone, but we've got about six sessions left on this. Um, As we come to the last three chapters of Mark's Gospel, we are firmly embedded in what is referred to as the Passion Week, which is the last week of Jesus' human life. Now, throughout the gospel, we've we've repeated this over and over and over. Mark's purpose has been to reveal Jesus as both Messiah and as the Son of God. And we've seen that repeated throughout the text. We see it in the way that Mark has structured his gospel. As we come to the end here, we're going to see, see um, some of that again um, as he finishes, especially with the centurion's declaration at the crucifixion of Christ that he is the Son of God. And so we, we'll see that again. But we're going to see some other things here, some different roles that Jesus served in as we look at these last three chapters. I'm going to briefly mention them here, and each one will correlate to one of our weeks that we'll be teaching. The first is a sacrificial lamb. We'll see Jesus as a sacrificial lamb. That's today. And we see it through his anointing and at the Last Supper. Next week we'll see him as the stricken shepherd as he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. We will then see him as the rejected Messiah, and that's through his trial. We will then see him as the condemned king during his sentencing phase with Pilate. We'll then see him as the crucified Son of God at his crucifixion. And then finally we will see him as his risen Lord through his resurrection. And that will be the last message of Mark's series. So what we see now at these next six teaching sessions are these varying roles that Jesus served in. Again, the sacrificial lamb, the stricken shepherd, the rejected Messiah, the condemned king, the crucified son, and then the risen Lord through his resurrection. In our passage today we're going to look at The first of those, the sacrificial lamb. And we see that through his anointing, his betrayal, and then ultimately revealing himself as the lamb. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the sacrificial lamb. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 1. We see the way John starts off his account of Jesus' life, John chapter 1, starting in verse 29, he says, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want you to jump now to verse 36, where he says again, Again, the next day was John standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus and he walk, as he walked, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Peter, Paul, and John all refer for Jesus as a sacrificial lamb as well. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. start in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Passover there, another way to read that is the Passover lamb. If we turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. You're getting your exercise this morning, aren't you? 1 Peter 1. We get some foreshadowing here. We start in verse 17, actually. If you address the Father as one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. So we see there again he's referred to as a lamb. Ultimately, I want you to. Um, ultimately, in the end, he's also referred to as the Lamb. If you turn to Revelation chapter five, the last book of the Bible. Actually, it's the misreference. I want you to turn twenty-one fourteen. Turn to twenty-one fourteen, Revelation see if I got my notes correct here. Yeah, there we go. Revelation chapter 21. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. This is the new city of Jerusalem. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles, and then you see of the Lamb. And so what we see is Jesus is referred to as the Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb or the Passover Lamb throughout the Old Testament. It's actually a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It all began with the establishment of the Passover in Exodus. Anybody remember that? When Pharaoh refused to listen, God sent a number of plagues on Israel, and the last one was to take the firstborn life of the Egyptians. And so Moses tells the Jews to basically sacrifice a lamb and to then paint the doorposts of their house, and as the angel of death passed over Egypt, those homes that had the blood of the lamb over their doorposts, their children were saved, and the angel of death passed over them. The Israelites then were told to actually repeat this on a regular basis as a celebration, not only as a reminder of God's deliverance, but a foreshadowing of the Passover lamb in Christ that would ultimately die for the sins of man. In addition to that, the law actually commanded that both at the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice, that a lamb be basically sacrificed to atone for the Israelites' sins. And we see in Isaiah 53 and Jeremiah 11 that the coming Messiah is identified as that sacrificial lamb. And so we see this both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, this concept of the Messiah, Christ, serving as a sacrificial lamb. And that's basically the background for our passage today. I want to go ahead and start in chapter 14 of Mark. What we have here in chapter 14, the very first 11 verses or so, is we have a bit of a sandwich. The first two verses actually address the plot to kill Jesus. The next seven verses or so... Um, talk about an anointing of Jesus, and then the two verses that that come after that go back to the plan or plot to kill Jesus. So it's a bit of of a sandwich that Mark does here. And I think the reason he does that is he wants to show us the contrast between what the leaders of Israel were thinking and doing, and one of his own disciples, Judas, and contrast that with the faithfulness of this woman who we now know to be Mary. And so he sets this up as sort of a contrast. I'm going to go ahead and read through these verses as we start here. But chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For these were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone, why do you bother her? She is done a good thing or a good deed to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could, she has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, whenever the God or wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Now you notice up in verse 1 it says that these things happened two days before the Passover. That's referring to the plot and what they were doing. Verses uh, 3 through 9 actually took place according to John about six days prior. So it's a bit of a flashback. So what we have here is Mark introducing this plot. And then he flashes back a few days earlier to this instance of the anointing. So basically it says that while Jesus and his disciples were at Simon the leper's house, this woman goes ahead and she enters and she's got this vial of oil, it says. According to John's account, again, it happened about six days prior, four days prior to this here. But um, according to John's account, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were also there. And Mary is the woman in question. Mark doesn't identify who this woman is. He leaves her somewhat anonymous. But we know that it happens to be One of the Marys. Now the perfume is described as an alabaster vase, or a vial, a very costly perfume. Now this was no ordinary perfume. It was made of pure spikenard, which means it was a highly prized perfume. It was very expensive. It's imported from India. Later in verse 5 we learn that it was worth 300 denarii. Anybody want to do the math on that? You know how much that is in today's dollars? I don't. What I do know, however, is that about one year's salary... Think about that for a minute. This was not some cheap bottle of stinky perfume that you pick up at Walmart. This was actually some very expensive perfume. Now, yeah, those of you that buy your perfume at Walmart just want well, I can't believe he said that. No, but you get my point there. This was um, very expensive. The fact that it was in an alabaster vase, which was sort of this translucent form of gypsum there, even the vase itself was very expensive. Some say that it was probably an heirloom because the way that it's described here is typical of something in that day that would be passed on from family to their kids, to their kids, and it was sort of like a family heirloom that would be passed on. It wasn't necessarily intended to be used. And here this woman is, she walks in and she basically breaks the vase and pours out the oil on Jesus. Now, anointing with oil was actually fairly common um, in the ancient Near East. It was done as a sign of fellowship. Um, It was done as a way of blessing somebody. Um, Sometimes a way way of designating them for a purpose. Um, But there's some interesting things that take place here. John, in his gospel, indicates that it was about a pound's worth of oil. So this was not a small vase either, which is partly why it was as expensive as it was. Not just the, the type of oil, which was expensive, but the amount of it. He says it was about a pound of oil. The fact that the woman broke the jar indicates that she intended to use all of it. Again, which was rather unusual. How many of you, especially you ladies, when you get up in the morning and you decide to put on some perfume, decide to use the whole bottle? I know some women that have been like that. I've walked into elevators where that's been the case. Not always a good thing. And children. children. Um, But the fact that she broke it indicates that she intended to use all of it. The text said that she poured it. It doesn't say that she poured some of it. It just says she poured it. She broke the bottle and poured it. A little bit later it says that she actually anointed his feet. So she starts with his head and she ends with her feet. Jesus also says a little bit later that she anointed his body with it. So basically what she did, according to one commentator, is she literally drenched Jesus in the oil. Covered him from head to foot. She knew something, whether she was absolutely convinced or knew fully what she was doing, she was anointing him for some purpose. And Jesus tells us what that purpose is a little bit later. As she does this, the disciples actually failed to see the significance of what she was doing, if you look at what it says in verses 4 and 5. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and money given to the poor. And they were scolding her for what she had done. Now, there's some indication that it um, may have been Judas who objected, because Judas controlled the purse the money and we're told that Judas was a thief he was stealing from the money that was being collected to help with Jesus's ministry we don't know for sure but John's account indicates that it was probably him that first objected to this and the other disciples joined in but they were indignant because of what they done. now their reasoning here that it could have been sold and given to the poor was probably from a good place meaning that the Jews were were instructed To care for the poor. That was something that was expected of them. And so their objection wasn't necessarily a bad objection. Because it was an awful lot of oil. But in their mind it had been wasted on Jesus. But look at how Jesus responds in verse 6. Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whatever you wish you can do to them. But you do not always have me. She's done what she could She has anointed my body beforehand. And then here's the key for the burial. These things here as we look at them are all leading to Jesus revealing himself as the sacrificial lamb. And again, the key of that is sacrificial. Because the whole point of being the lamb of God is that he would ultimately have to be sacrificed And so in Jesus' words here, she came to anoint him beforehand for the purpose of his burial. Now normally the anointing happened afterwards. But this is something she did beforehand in preparation. You notice too, it says there that what she's done would also be spoken of in her memory wherever the gospel is preached. And here we are today speaking of it. In fact, according to John, we know her name, Mary. And so just as Jesus promised here she would be remembered for what she had done and so what we see in these first 11 verses or the first i'll say seven verses from verse three down to verse nine is ultimately the anointing of the sacrificial lamb preparing him for his death let's look at verses 12 and following this is where we're going to see the sacrificial lamb actually betrayed, because that's going to be necessary as well. It's, it kind of reminds me, one of the things that the Jews were expected to do with the Passover lamb was to take the lamb into their house with them, and to live with this lamb for a few days. I think what that must have been like then, to take that little baby lamb out and slaughter at The betrayal. And we've got a pet at home, we've got a, you know, a, a dog at home. I can't imagine something like that. But there's betrayal involved with it. But the betrayal of the sacrificial lamb is also a requirement. Had to happen. So let's look at verse twelve and following. On the first day of the unleavened bread when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed there's no coincidence there that this is happening at this time, but when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you and carry a pitcher of water, for, carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him and wherever he enters say to the owner of the house the teacher says where is my guest room in which i may eat the passover with my disciples and he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready prepare for us there the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the passover when it was evening he came to the twelve or with the 12 and they were reclining at the table and eating jesus said truly i say to you one Of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. While they were eating, he took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them, and he said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken up a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So in this place, we'll actually see the sacrificial lamb betrayed. Notice there's a couple of elements within the meal that Jesus does something with. The first is actually the bread, and the second is the cup. And we're going to see how he redefines those for us. But you notice, let's just take a look at what he does here. Jesus actually has some disturbing news for them. You get together to celebrate this amazing feast, this Passover here, something they were used to doing supposed to be a celebratory time, a time of remembrance as well. But Jesus has some rather disturbing news. You notice that the word betrayed, I think it's uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times that word betrayed shows up in this text. Do you suppose Mark is trying to communicate something to us? Yeah, this is all about betrayal. Jesus said the betrayer is going to be one of the twelve, one of his closest associates. But he also says that it would fulfill what is written about him. According to the Gospel of Matthew, this was a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 through 13. Though Matthew actually attributes it to Jeremiah in the text. And it's partly because when Jews ref- would combine multiple verses together from multiple prophets, they would usually only reference the first prophet. So if you go to the book of Matthew, it says that Jeremiah said these things, but it's actually referenced to Zechariah. Each of the disciples, one by one, says, oh, it couldn't be me. Certainly I wouldn't betray Jesus. We know that's ultimately not the case because one of them finally did. I want you to turn to John chapter 13 with me. John chapter 13, verse 21. Starting verse twenty one of John chapter thirteen. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another, at a loss to know which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is if or tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, the one leaning on Jesus, leaning back, thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Then Jesus answered, That is the one of whom I will dip a morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you must do, do quickly. Now one of those who was reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast or else um, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Basically, what we have here is the disciples were all confused on what Jesus was doing. Can you imagine what that must have been like? You're going to celebrate this feast and Jesus basically tells them, one of you is going to betray me and they're all trying to figure out who it is. Well, it becomes pretty clear that it was Judas. Jesus revealed that specifically during the meal. But the disciples still didn't quite get it. They assigned some other purpose to Judas. They just didn't take or understand Jesus' words exactly as they were intended. So what we find here is, again, the sacrificial lamb. The concept is that he's going to be betrayed. In fact, Jesus refers to himself that way here. We find in verses 22 through 26 now where Jesus does just that. Reveals himself exactly as a sacrificial lamb. Look at verse uh, 22 of chapter 14. While he was eating, he took some bread and after blessing he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, take it, this is my body. When he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So we have these two different elements here that Jesus refers to. The first element is the bread. Traditionally, the unleavened bread was part of the Passover meal, and it represented the haste in which Israel had to leave Israel. If you remember, um, they were told to do it quickly, and so they didn't have time for their bread to leaven, which means to put yeast in it and... If any of you have ever used or made homemade bread, you know that you put yeast in it and you wait. Then, and with certain temperature and moisture in the air, that bread will finally start to rise. If you don't do that, it comes out rather flat and a little more tough. And so, with the Israelites, they didn't have time to leave Israel or to wait for the bread to rise and so they were told to basically use unleavened bread and so typically during the meal here they would use unleavened bread to represent the haste at which they had to leave Israel but Jesus in this case takes that bread and he gives a brand new meaning to it what does he say? he says take it this is my body Luke actually adds a phrase which is given to you so Jesus takes this typical part of a meal the Passover meal and redefines what the bread now is supposed to represent it ultimately represents his body, which, again, Luke adds, was given for them, which means ultimately to be sacrificed. The second element is actually the wine. Now, in the traditional Passover, there were four different cups of wine that were used. And they actually represented something. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 6 with me. Oops. Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 6, i got to read 6 and 7 here. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments, then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. What they would basically do is they took that passage, they look at the I wills, and they break them into four groups. First one's I will bring you out of the bur- or out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and so the first cup would represent God. Releasing them from the burdens of the Egyptians. The second cup, they take and apply it to the bondage, I will deliver you from your bondage. The third cup was about redemption, where Jesus or where God says, I will redeem you. And then the fourth cup was I will take you from my, or I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And so they had these four cups that they would use during that Passover meal, representing each one of the I wills from the Exodus passage. But Jesus, again, now takes and assigns new meaning, ultimately, to the wine, to using a single cup. That's found in verse 24. He says this, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And So there are three things, I guess if you want to say it that way, three new meanings that Jesus is going to assign. He goes from these four cups... He now takes one cup and he assigns new meaning to the cup and the wine, and there's three different aspects to it. It now represents his blood, which he says was shed to to, um, secure forgiveness, redemption, and eternal life for mankind. The Old Covenant required regular ongoing sacrifices, which ultimately served as a reminder of sin. You know that from the Old Testament. They would have to sacrifice whether it was doves or sheep or lamb, on a regular basis, and every time they did it, it was a reminder of their sin. According to the author of Hebrews, however, that's no longer necessary because Jesus did one sacrifice that served for all time. I want you to turn to the book of Hebrews with me. We're going to look at a couple of passages there, starting in Hebrews 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. You guys will recognize this. We're going to start up in verse 18. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and of goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one must also say, or almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So the first thing we see there is that there had to be shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. I think about it only Jesus could ultimately do that for us. Look at um, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11. Just go back a couple chapters. What's that? Hebrews 9:11. That's the right one. But when Christ appeared As a high priest of all good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands, but it is to say not of his creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So basically, Jesus Christ, it says here, made the sacrifice once for all to enter into what's called the holy place, to enter into the presence of God. That it couldn't be blood of goats and sheep that did that for us. It had to be the Son of God. He became the sacrificial lamb. And he did it, it says here, once for all. Peter actually said it this way. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So what do we have? The first thing that Jesus did with this wine is he says that it represents his blood, which was shed, the blood of the Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb that was shed on their behalf to secure their salvation. So now, as the Hebrews would go forward and celebrate Passover, which many of them did, they would be able to remember that instead of these four cups that we use to celebrate that represent what God did back in Egypt, we now can have new meaning assigned to the wine in the cup. And it represents the shed blood of Jesus Christ that ultimately paid the price. He was the ultimate sacrificial lamb. The second thing that it did was it served as a sign of the new covenant. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 9 again. Verse 15... For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is only valid when men are dead, For it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law. He took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and itself. We already read this. But basically, what happened with this is, you have the old covenant which was ratified by blood. You now have this new covenant that's ratified by blood as well, but it happens to be the blood of the ultimate sacrificial lamb, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus said that this is a sign of the new covenant, which replaces the old. We are no longer bound by the covenant of the Old Testament. We're not bound by the law of the Old Testament with its rules and its regulations. Instead, we are now bound to God by a new covenant, which was established in the blood of the sacrificial lamb, named Christ. The third thing that it does according to Jesus in verse 24 of Mark it serves as a reminder of the future time when we will drink it anew in the kingdom of God isn't that really what it's all about Jesus told his disciples there in verse 24 that I will not drink it until I drink it new in the kingdom of God we know that a time is coming when Jesus will ultimately celebrate the marriage supper of the lamb which is where the church is united ultimately with Christ, and his bride, the church, is brought to him. And there's a giant celebration, a marriage supper it's referred to, a feast of the Lamb. And so Jesus says here that this cup will ultimately serve as a reminder that I'm waiting. And so when we celebrate these things, when we actually celebrate the bread and the cup as Jesus commanded us to do, we have these things in mind. The bread represents... His body which was shed or that was which was put on the cross for us the blood actually represents these three things the redemption that we now have in him the sign of the new covenant and then ultimately the future that we have with him and so what we basically have with chapter 14 here i believe mark has established for us that one of the roles that christ fulfilled was that of the sacrificial lamb. Remember the Old Testament, they had to do that on a regular basis. And the Jews would have understood that. Gentiles maybe not so much. But the Jews would have understood that the lambs had to be sacrificed. Now, for many of them, they believed that it took away their sin. But what we've been told this morning is that the blood of goats and sheep can't take away sin. God established that for one reason. One reason. And it was to serve as a foreshadowing of the coming sacrificial lamb. His son, ultimately, that would stand in the place of that Passover lamb, who would be sacrificed on our behalf. And according to, again, the book of Hebrews, he would be sacrificed one time as a once-for-all sacrifice to establish a new covenant. And so I I find it interesting here that as we go through these next... Um, it'll be the next five sessions here, we'll see each one of these roles kind of defined or underpinning everything that we study here. And so today, the underpinning, if you will, is just this imagery of the sacrificial lamb that we have in Christ.